or now we're live. Uh, so what I would say is if you're doing, if you're Kevin, if you're following along on the watch page, I didn't mention this. I always forget mute the video because it's going to come back into your, uh, yeah, you're going to hear the, an echo. It's going to be super annoying. Uh, so everyone, uh, I'm Ken Johnson. Uh, we've got Seth law and Hi. our guest, Kevin Cody tonight for at the absolute AppSec podcast. We're on episode six. Uh, so Kevin, Kevin Cody, we've known him for a bit. We've worked with him. Um, super sharp guy. Uh, so he works at Invisium. He's a consultant. Um, and one of the things I've, I've personally known Kevin for, um, besides his, we'll get into it, uh, you know, the, the talks he's given at CodeMash. But um, if you know anything about or if you follow Kevin at all, and I'll put his uh, Twitter handle on or his, the link to his Twitter account in this chat, he's really big into like mobile app security. Um, I mean, there there are a lot of tutorials that you know I've seen him kind of pass around or um, discuss. So around around like doing mobile app security. So, um, without further ado, is there anything you wanted to add to that, Kevin? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I do work at Invisium. I do uh, mobile application security assessments and. Um, uh, do some bug bounty stuff or, or um, you know, look at uh, mobile applications on the side, proxy traffic, look at how uh, folks are doing some certain things um, and, and, and always trying to learn tearing uh, IoT devices apart and, and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, that, that's me. <laughs> yeah, and we, we first met in person, in person at uh, CodeMash in, was it 2016, 2017? I can't mm -hmm. remember. Um, but yeah, that was, did you go? Yeah. So no, so you gave, sorry, you gave a talk this, this year at code mash 2018. And, um, did you bring the family out again to, uh, that like cool. Galahari, right. Yeah. 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 So for folks who may not know, um, I was introduced to code mash by the awesome, uh, Bill Senf. Uh, he's a, a wasp guy out of Cle or out of Columbus, excuse me. Uh, and uh, a .NET guy all around, uh, really nice guy. Um, he came out to talk to OWASP Pittsburgh, which I'm a chapter leader of, and um, you know, hit it off with him. But uh, he introduced me to CodeMash. CodeMash is in Sandusky, beautiful Sandusky, Ohio, the second week of January every year. Uh, so there's always snow and ice and, and fun stuff. But um, it's at the Midwest region's largest indoor water park. So uh, it's a huge convention center and water park and all that fun stuff. And if you go, they give out the water park passes like candy because everyone else is at a convention center. So you can bring your family and, and let the kids uh, play in the, in the park or, or significant other float around the, the lazy river all day or whatnot. So yeah, this is my third year in a row speaking at CodeMash. Um, and uh, I brought the family again and, and, and they had a blast. It was a very family friendly environment when we were out there. Um... Like, it, you know, because there's always that concern that if you bring your kids to a conference, there's going to be, I mean, for me anyways, that, you know, basically maybe some drinking and cursing and stuff, you know, obviously stuff that's not like kid appropriate, 
Um, but Code Mash, on the other hand, is like super, yeah, super Sa- family. Sandusky really isn't Vegas, right? That's the. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I I can't say enough good things about Code Mash, right? That I only went one year. It was like three or four years ago, and loved it, and just haven't had the opportunity to get back, but. I mean, besides the fact that it's bitter cold because it's the first or second week in January, but the conference center, the organizers, it's, that's a top-notch conference for sure. It's all development-focused. It's, it's really quite interesting because it isn't just one language. It's multi – I mean, it's polyglot, right? you got people talking about Ruby. you got people talking about Java, all sorts of interesting topics from security to everything else. I, I mean, how many tracks were there this year? Or how many tracks did you guys see this last time around? I think at any given time there could be up to something like ten tracks going on, uh, you know, between the the main tracks, and then there's the the um, the open spaces, and there's smaller tracks, and um, you know, there are all the different rooms are, are named in certain themes, and and I'm like, oh, where's this room at again, or, or what's going on? And you go around the corner, and there's people racing first person uh, drones around the hallways, and you know all that kind of crazy stuff. It's just, uh, it's a blast. And, and you hit it on the head. I love it because it is a builders conference. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy the B sides, I enjoy the, the Defcons and the Black Hats and the and the the Derbies, but just being around so many people who are building things up. And I can be the guy thinking like, you know, I don't know about that, or that's really cool. Uh, but I keep my opinions to myself and just enjoy, um, you know, folks who are, who are building things that I could never build. So. Yeah, I, I, the year that I went, I went with Ernie Miller. He was the one that was went, that went with me, and it was, and he was always that builder mindset for sure. So it be it was really interesting to get kind of his take on it, the developer take on it, rather than the jaded security professional who's in an organization and. Ah, the sky's falling, right? Yeah. It's definitely got a much more positive spin to it than some of the security conferences that you go to. So, anyway, that's—I I, guess—that's our, uh, you know, our plug for Code Mash for this episode. <laughs> we weren't planning on. <laughs> well, so what was your? Because uh, I, I know what your talk is about, but for everybody that wasn't, um, who didn't attend or doesn't know you. Um, what can you kind of give a synopsis of what the talk was about and what kind of you know takeaways were from from it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to read the the name verbatim because I had this thing where I had to jam as many words as possible into a, a title, even though I, <laughs> I I take the mean of last year's and try to fit it in there, just so I'm not like the one who's has the most words, and yet I still have the most words. But um, so it's called it was called enhancing application security understanding and utilizing browser security features, which is <laughs> way too many words. But That's a um, mouthful. Yeah, yeah. EAS, I'm just trying to acronym it down. Uh, EAS, uh, um, there you go. Which is a perfect, perfect uh, segue because that's exactly <laughs> what my talk was about. It's about um, all these crazy acronyms and headers that we have on on uh, our applications and, and HTTP you know, specifically, um, and kind of demystifying those and understanding how our browsers um, can protect us. Right, if we utilize the protections that are built in uh, with different headers, with different browser security features, how how can we basically? Um, uh, kickstart our, our, our security to where we don't have to worry about some of those things. So I know a couple of weeks ago when you had Evan on the show, Evan Johnson, you talked about cores pretty heavily. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, there's, there's obviously um, 
uh, you know, chorus headers that, 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 that play into it. I, I kind of did a, a base around same origin policy, right? I went over what exactly same origin policy is. Um, and then from there, my, my, my plan of attack was just to go over each of the different X headers, uh, the different uh, like CSP um, and talk about what they are, what the acronyms mean, how they can protect you. Um, and then the bigger portion uh, or, or kind of the, uh, the segue, what I was trying to lead into is to follow that up with a blog post after um, I got done with the talk and talk about how you can set those browser uh, security headers outside of the application tier. So your, app, your, your developers can focus on what they focus and then you just plug these protections in outside of the application. So the goal was kind of two part, introduce all the security features in the talk and then follow it up with a blog post, which is still coming, I think, next week. Um, <laughs> talk, talking about how to set those with different, you know, uh, load balancers and, and uh, uh, Lambda functions at edge and things like that. So. Nice. Did you happen to mention when you're talking about um, HPKP, did you get into kind of like Scott Helms uh, take on all that? Is you know I'm giving up on HPKP. Um, it's not stance. only them, right? It's right. also Chrome, right? They've they've now deprecated HK, HKPK or whatever it is. HKPK. Yeah. So. Meaning. <laughs> um, yeah. So so HTTPS uh, public key pinning HPKP. I did hit on it. Um, I exactly what you said, uh, Seth. I, I I basically led in with, hey, this thing's deprecated. So everything I'm about to say. Uh, take it with a grain of salt, but I, I also uh, dovetailed that with um, a kind of light version of that, which which I'll get to in a second. But but to, to summarize, you know, basically, um, like like Seth had, had mentioned, uh, Chrome has come out and say, hey, look, um, HPKP was was a, a great idea, um, and and you know, people have implemented it. I I, I know I've I've, uh, I've seen it in headers around the internet, um, but it's basically. Um, with the introduce, introduction of certificate transparency and some of the other protections that are being pushed down, um, it's just not very widely adopted. And people who have adopted it have struggled with, um, you know, rotation of, of, of certs and different things that have kind of, um, you know, sinkhole their traffic. And if you sinkhole your user's traffic, it's, you know, end of days, right? Um, so uh, I basically, I did introduce it. I, I talked about what it was. Basically, you take a hash of your of your uh, certificate, you pin to that hash. You can have a backup hash in case you ever have to rotate. Um, so I, I introduced it, but I basically followed that up with um, what is uh, known as uh, it's a DNS record, which is known as a certificate authority authorization, uh, which basically is a DNS record that you put in. Um, for your domain, and you say I only allow Digicert or um, Komodo or, or Let's Encrypt to authorize um, the issuance of certificate authorities for my domain, and um, if the folks like Google and Firefox catch folks um, not obeying that in the the, the cab forum, then they're basically going to you know put the smack down and, and start you know doing the the old semantic and kicking them out of the, the group. So um, that's kind of what I, I, I finalized uh, my recommendation. It's very easy to do. 
you can pin to, to or not pin, excuse me, you can uh, designate multiple CAs. Uh, so you can say, hey, these are five CAs that we trust to give us our, our uh, certificates. Anyone else who happens to get a certificate uh, or tries to get a certificate outside of those five, um, you know, don't allow them to. And, and if they get one, it's all tracked with certificate transparency, hopefully, and Google or, or Firefox or Mozilla or whoever comes back and, and you know, puts the ban hammer on them. So. Yeah, I mean, at the same time that we saw that fall off, right? It was the same, uh, you know, Chrome implemented or they like started pushing expect CT a lot harder, right? So, I mean, from your perspective, I mean, uh, it sounds like you've gone towards the the DNS record route. Um, why? So, why do you think that Google went that other direction with expect CT instead? Yeah. Um... So, I mean, I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot. I just. <laughs> hey, why do you disagree with Google? Yeah, yeah, come on. <laughs> yeah, so so um, I would have to, I, had, I have to honestly would have to brush up on exactly um, how uh, expect TC or CT differs. I understand trans, uh, certificate transparency pretty well. Um, I'd have to look at, at I know Scott Helm, of course, uh, the, the, uh, um, authoritative uh, source on uh, headers. He has some some good write-ups on it. So I'd have to look exactly um, how that is enforced and, and what all that entails. At the end of the day, um, uh, between the, the CAB forum um, recommending or forcing different uh, CAs to utilize certificate transparency um, and the ones who have opted in from the beginning um, and just looking at the different uh, you know Markov chains and all the different stuff that goes into CT. I understand um, you know base, the the basic premise of it, but exactly how that differs or um, plays into the DNS CAA record, uh, I'll have to I'll have to look into that a little bit. <laughs> no, that's that's fine. I mean, I'm I'm the same way. I'm like googling it right now. Um, I mean, I remember right reading Scott Helm's stuff. Um, it's it's pretty interesting and like how how it seems to migrate right. You know, my, my my big question, especially around securities headers, is how many of these are we going to end up with, right? It just seems like every new kind of niche problem that we run into with security, it's like, oh, well, we'll come up with a new security header and maybe that'll work or maybe it won't. I mean, we see ones that, you know, graduate or we see like the old like cache control headers that are very well implemented. And then adoption rates are a huge problem, too. Um, I mean, you look at apps all the time. How often do you actually see all the security headers properly set? Yeah, that, and that's kind of the cool thing about um, content security policy. You can actually take all of those headers and, for the most part, collapse them all down into into CSP. And actually, a, a funny thing that you mentioned just the sheer amount of of, of header values and and you know, the folks that actually use them all. And we have, what, census and, and uh, securityheaders.io who do a good job of, of grading and, and, and telling us how we can beef things up. But someone actually raised their hand at CodeMash and they said, what's the size limit on security headers? Like how much can our browsers actually store? And I think it's like 4K. Uh, yep. which is a good amount. Uh, but someone said like, hey, what happens when we, we go past that? And that's a good point. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we are getting a lot sounds of like a good buzzing test that we should be running as it is, right? <laughs> no, I, I, I get it's, it's pretty, you know, I, well, it's, it's pretty relevant to me right now. I've been doing some uh, research work with Risk Recon. It's like a third party 
automated risk assessment tool that goes out and does like business risk assessments. But they've got all this data from the sites that they scrape and the security headers that are associated with those different sites. And so it, it's kind of interesting to compare and contrast that with, you know, Scott Helms, you know, scan of the Alexa million, top million or whatever, because they're looking at strictly business sites and login forms, registration forms. And, you know, it, like the adoption rates are very different when it comes to something like a marketing site, right? WordPress or whatever it is, even though it probably shouldn't be. And then, hey, we've got like this uber critical uh, site that all of our customers log into. So we pay attention to that one. Uh, but you start to wonder where the crossover actually is with a lot of that and how much how much a, a, a dedicated attacker could take advantage of, right? Uh, I mean, obviously, CSP on, you know, the, the major sites, those guys have probably got it dialed in because they've got a security team. But some little, uh, you know, for lack of a better, you know, example, some little hospital in the Midwest somewhere, hey, there's one security guy and he also handles desktops it's probably not going to be the same level of implementation there. And uh, like, I, I, I feel like we implement a lot of this stuff or we, you know, we write the policies around it. We write the RFCs and then we don't give people an easy way to actually implement them. Right. The fact that we have to go and write a full on like white paper on CSP to tell people how to use it and then they go and implement it wrong. Or then I look at those headers and what I see is they're, they're misspelling the name of the header, right? I'm like, so you, all that work is just gone, right? It doesn't matter that you did it because the browser just ignored it all, right? So, I mean, how do you, how do you approach that with developers or with those less experienced people? I, I mean, I, I know there's no good answer here, but what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, I, um, I have I have the same the same thoughts that, that you do the same horror stories um, you know for for instance you know HSTS which is a um, can have some pretty big implications if you if you don't know what you're doing or you set it too long um, you know I, I uh, had an assessment once where I, I said hey you know HSTS is good do that um, and uh, you know something happened and, and then they messaged me back and said hey we we, we did this and and um, you know we were. Uh, we applied it at the the uh, uh, web server, and um, you know, but then we realized that we're terminating TLS at the load balancer, and we're having some issues there. And then we set you know uh, the the secure cookie directive, and we're having issues there. And you know, especially with with HSTS um, and and those types of issues, um, you know, it, I really just have to go back to them and, and kind of recenter and say, listen, these are defense in depth type things. It's not a it's not a silver bullet. It's not a one part, you know one shot protects all. Although CSP is um, you know a combination of a lot of good things. So if there is one that, that does a lot, it's CSP with a really detailed um, uh, uh, concatenation of, of controls. But um, you know at the end of the day, I, I do go back and say, listen, like there's five headers that I'm recommending that you implement here. Um, each one in and of themselves are, are good protection, but it's all about defense and depth. Just like everything else we do, it's all about defense and depth. And if you can't apply or you don't know the repercussions of applying this header 
uh, and you don't want to, to regression test it, or you you um, are just kind of blindly you know reading my report and implementing something. Um, I'd rather you didn't implement it. And we talk about other ways of protection rather than slap a header on and, and sink all your traffic. Again, if it's a uh, if your presence on the internet is a main source uh, uh, source of your revenue and you sink all your users' traffic, what what happens? And something like HSTS specifically you actually have to go in into like net internals or, or, or um, uh, your, your Firefox config and clear that cache manually or wait for those seconds to expire. And that's, that's really dangerous. So, um, I, no, I mean, you talk about that. I like I just recently within the last couple of weeks, I was, I was working with a client and you know, they've got a, you know, a single page application JavaScript front end. That's, that's talking to all of these different backends um, and all of a sudden, we get they get emails saying, "Hey, the marketing links don't work anymore because one of the microservices on the back end implemented HSTS just inside their Node configuration, turned it on for six months, and did include subdomains. And all of a sudden, you know, none of the marketing emails they get like these big warning signs in Chrome, and you know, it was just like, oh, this is a huge headache because somebody." just implemented something on one of the domains that you happen to trust within your application. And I mean, just tracking it down was a, was a, a nightmare, right? And you can only imagine somebody that didn't have that knowledge. It would just, like you're saying, it would sinkhole all their traffic and probably kill them, right? You know, yeah. From a revenue perspective. Yeah, so I think I think overall they're a cool protection. It's cool that you can add them outside of the app tier. You can you can tack them on at the load balancer or with the with the lambda edge, edge function. That's that's really cool. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, I, I, they're they're just little defense in depth layers, and looking at them, you know, like that, and understanding the repercussions of of implementing them both right and wrong are really important. And so I, I hate to minimize it. I hate to say, hey, it's it's a, it's a free way of of in, uh, decreasing your your threat profile because it's not really free if you don't understand what, what the downstream effects are. But um, they're powerful, and, and, and they are, um, like you mentioned, there's a ton of them. And, and it's, it's fodder for days. And obviously, Scott Helm, who's, who's the, the, the expert on it, continuously has more and more and more blogs out on this new, new header or that new feature. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it keeps us on our toes. <laughs> so CSP, that's, the, that, that's your recommendation then for the top header to actually use? If, because, if you have to implement one, that would be it. Yeah, because uh, the obviously XSS protection, the uh, content, um, uh, the MIME type sniffing, the uh, HSTS even, uh, you know, a lot of those things can basically be concatenated into one CSP policy. Um, I don't know the, the historic, um, uh, and obviously more, more than, than, than just those things, but I don't know how far back browsers obey CSP and, and you know, uh, the adoption rate going back. But if you look at any of those headers and go to like Wikipedia and type in whatever header, um, and you look at that big matrix of supported at this level and this level at this level at this level, um, none of them are supported across the board. Uh, none of them have adoption with every browser. Um, obviously WebKit, uh, the, the whatever Edge Trident engine and um, uh, Chromium are gonna have pretty good support. But uh, at the end of the day, yeah, I think CSP is the way to go. Um, there's a couple good CSP evaluators out there. There's one made by Google. Uh, I think it has like an on Google uh, domain. Um, and then there's uh, the the observatory, Mozilla Observatory. So you can 
let them look at your your uh, config. They'll parse it out. They'll tell you what what it does, what it hits on, what it where it needs um, improvement. And uh, I think that's honestly the way to go. Cool. I'll add as a side note that uh, at work with developers, we so we we have an automated way of basically if you modify um, if you if you override header settings for CSP, like we get a notification. And it's really nice because every time there's like um, we want to iframe something or you know some whatever whatever need there may be for changing those those headers, it's like basically gives us an alert that hey we should check on this. And sometimes it's it's um, what seems simple like oh we're just going to iframe is actually part of a bigger effort, and it like kind of just gives us this heads up that this is going to happen. So whatever the the new functionality, the new feature is going to be. So just from a, like this, making it pretty transparent when things like that are changed and making our lives easier. I don't know. Maybe that's just a different perspective from, from the defensive side of things uh, on how I've seen that help. I don't know. No, it makes sense. Right. I, I mean, it does feel like it's more of a catch all, but right. Again, the, the time investment needed, is the the one thing that I I have a hard time pushing people on when they have other problems, right? I mean, if you if you got obviously it's a, it's all like a risk calculation, you know. If you've got SQL injection on your homepage or on you know one of your login pages, that's going to take priority over a security header. Um, but you know, if you like you know like Ken's team, if you've got some sort of cross site scripting vulnerability, CSP probably takes care of that in most cases, as long as it's configured properly. So, you know, I don't know, yeah. I, again, you know, advantage goes to the the well-funded teams and the well-funded, you know, security organizations. Uh, but I think that's always going to be the case. I mean, the people that take it seriously, are those, those are the ones that are going to, uh, they're going to take advantage of those controls, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term. So. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you're going to, yeah, I mean, it's just improving your security posture. Although it's like a really, because it's so easy to introduce something like cross-site scripting, so easy, yeah. right? I mean, I've done it before. I'll fully admit on this live chat on YouTube, I haven't introduced XSS before. It's easy to do. Um, so having CSP as a backup, good. It's a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Good thing, good thing TM. I got yeah. Trademark that stampa. <laughs> yeah. Stamp it. Oh, well, speaking, um, yeah. Speaking of unintended consequences, Kevin, tell tell us what happened with your GitHub account. <laughs> well, it's a, it's yeah. Perfect use of two uh, FA, right? You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of a, a, a conglomerate. Of, there are several things that I did. Probably not the best. Um, the best uh, way of going about things that, that led to me getting locked out of my my personal GitHub account, which I don't have any original content in there. So it's really, you know, I just kind of miss my username if, if, if it's lost forever. But um, I, I last year at uh, Code Mash, I actually talked about um, 
some different uh, authentication, you know, SAML and, and, and uh, um, you know, all the different auth paradigms. And then I talked about U2F. And then so the second quarter of last year, uh, my buddy John Ziola has a, uh, a meetup group in Pittsburgh called Steel City InfoSec. He uh, had me out and we did a lab on, on U2F, Fido U2F. And uh, in the lab, um, I was originally going to do like a live demo with GitHub and show how like the traffic goes through and, and all that stuff. And silly me, I um, instead of you know building something on my own, um, I, I must have messed up my U2F token somehow, and um, ended up having to disable it. So that was like part one. Part two was I get a, a new phone, uh, you know, a new iPhone, and with Duo. Obviously, that stuff isn't backed up. Uh, those uh, HOTP, TOTP tokens aren't backed up. But they did just introduce this way of you getting back, like some type of automated fashion of getting back uh, previous tokens. And what ended up happening was they have a link. And it's like, hey, click here in the Duo app to get your account back. So I click that and then scan the QR code for my GitHub account, which was actually my work GitHub account. And it replaced the personal GitHub um qr code you know the the, the time-based authenticator um so that was that was problem two and somewhere along the lines um my my last pass didn't sync up with all my my recovery codes so um three strikes you're out and i can't get in my github account anymore <laughs> well you know someone who works at github uh but you know i think it's i think we need someone who works at duo as well let them know what happens when you try to get try to try to use that auto recover feature how it can go wrong yeah mm. it's, it's all i mean so uh, another podcast that i listen to the the guy always says like listen every time i get one of those those qr codes i just print it off because my threat model doesn't include someone coming into my house going into my filing cabinet and getting all my qr codes out of it and if it does i'm really not worried about it i'm more worried about people unauthenticated coming in from the outside internet who might get my password and a password dump. So I've started doing that. I've started printing off the, you know, so funny thing is I have a bunch of QR codes that are for all the other accounts, but my personal GitHub account, but you know, um, yeah, don't, if you break into my house, you can have my QR codes. Sweet, okay, so the challenge is on, break out your lock picks. <laughs> if you break into my house, you'll get a bullet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's other there's other protections in place that you have to deal with. That's in my threat model. <laughs> well, there's there's other there's other uh, TOTP HOTP services. I think Authy. I don't know if anyone you yeah. guys use Authy or other people use Authy. Where I think it actually backs that material up. I'm not a big fan of that. I like having it all offline, local, whatever. Um, obviously, that puts the onus on myself to have backup codes, recovery codes, or the, the actual QR code. And I messed up. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But um, it's all about what you where you feel, you know, that that, that medium is or um, the other thing was I took off SMS backup, because I wanted to show that you could do that and just rely on uh, having more strict con security controls. And I know other services that have um, uh, uh, either TOTP, HOTP, or even UTF um, capable um, authenticators, they don't let you turn off SMS. You have to have SMS as a backup. And I hate that. I used to work for a telecom. I know the weak links. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, 
that's it's all up to you. <laughs> I don't know. That's like any more, right? The number of those codes that you get. I, I, like I like the idea of you know backing them up in a physical form because the number that are on my phone now, I, like when I did my latest upgrade, it was so painful, right? Like having to have both phones up and then like slowly migrating all the Google Authenticator ones, then all the Duo ones, figure out which admins I needed to talk to so I could actually get that code back. It, it's not a, it's not an easy thing, right? And and yet at the same time, it's like okay, I understand the security level, and I'm a security guy, but you know I can't imagine trying to talk like like my wife into doing something like that. She'd just be like, okay, this totally isn't worth it, right? You know, I you know at the very least, I I can get her to use you know random passwords coming out of one password or LastPass, but and uh, you know. If I try to tell her that she can't log into whichever site that she's getting in, yeah, it just isn't going to end well, right? There's actually um, on that on this whole note. Have you have have either of you? I've heard murmurs of uh, around WebAuth, and I've not looked into the spec uh, super in any super deep detailed manner. But I'm curious if either of you have looked at WebAuth and the spec. I'm gonna put the link into. Uh, I hope it's actually working because I remember last week when I was, yep, now it's messing up the links. 404 not found. Ugh. Drive me nuts. I'll uh, do what I did last week to fix it. But anyways, uh, yeah, so there's like this web off and spec. Um, I thought for, sorry, I'm. So what, to... it, so what is it, right? Like give a little background there. What? Why did that come up in your head? Because uh, it's for it's like a credential management um, API built into the web browser, um, and it's around it allows users to register and authenticate with web applications using an authenticator such as a phone. Because uh, I've seen this in U2F uh, talked about in tandem, but I just I haven't really looked into it. Um, it's like brand new to me. I've never even. Obviously, I've never really delved in, uh, dive, uh, here, let me put the, uh, sorry, here, there you go. Yeah, I mean, the draft that's there on w3.org looks like it's from the 5th of December last year, so it's still in development, right? It's still in draft status. Oh, yeah, it's still still in draft status, as far as I know. I, um, I, I heard sorry. that. A different podcast who was who, uh, they were discussing it and um from what i understood and, and and what i could ascertain through uh audio only it was uh it has good roots it, it has adoption by the, the big players right your microsoft your google's your your uh um you know big players of the world and um it's uh it, it has a promising future that's that's honestly the the uh, the only bit that i know about it but I don't know. I, it, that's it. That's interesting. I mean, if you've got people like Duo that are excited about it, you know that it's. Like, I, I mean, you got to respect Duo's research arm and all that they actually do. So, uh, I'll have to read up on it because it, it looks pretty interesting as far as you know how it how it's actually used, right? I, you know, I don't have a lot of good background on it yet, so. Shout out, Brian's on. Hey, Brian. Yeah, and I don't think I'm. Yeah, 
figure it all out and uh, yeah but well okay so this is a follow-up topic i just was curious if either because i've been meaning to look into the spec a little bit more um anyway so we'll we'll mark that down as a follow-up item same maybe i can update my uh one blog post on my common blog my new blog platform to include web authent <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, okay. So, yeah, let's talk about your blog. Let's talk. Let's talk about Face ID, right? Yeah, I. Um, that was an interesting one. So, I threw a blog post together um, on on my new new WordPress blog right after kind of the announcement, or right around you know, the not WWDC, the, the the fall announcement of the whole Face ID thing, and I just threw th threw some thoughts together as far as like it's gonna get. Oh, it, it, there's there's going to be someone who figures out the bare minimum. Um, it was before the iPhone X was released. Anyone knew how any, any of it worked before Apple's white paper came out. And I was like, you just, you just look back at everything that, that, that's happened previously and look at the track record. And you know that although they showed the, the guy with all the really cool masks and, and, and all the work that Apple did, which I think they did, did do a lot of good work. Um, it's just a matter of time. Someone's going to figure this out. And sure enough, Come November, when the iPhone X launched, you know, kids are unlocking their parents' uh, phones because they look like their parents, or you know, someone figured out it was just like eyes, nose, and one other characteristic that needed to be cloned in a three D fashion uh, for it to work. And and um, yeah, I mean, it. it I, I don't think it surprised anyone. Um, I actually am not a fan of Face ID just because it doesn't work nearly as 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 uh, well as Touch ID for for me. And I know um, the the resolution of Face ID is supposed to be one million to one versus fifty thousand to one for Touch ID. So the actual security around that is supposed to be stronger just because the resolution has more input points. So that feeds into the the the, the ratio of of uh, success versus unsuccess, but. If I'm in bed and I have a white pillow behind my head, it can't, it never, it, I actually have to like sit up and go like this and look with my eyes wide open for it to know that I'm here and I am me. And of course I'm a security guy. So I have like a 15 character phone <laughs> password that I'm plugging in when I can barely, you know, see in the middle of the night to check my kid's nest cam, you know? So anyway, that's a different tangent. <laughs> no, I, I mean, that, that was the exact point that I was going to make is the, the usability of Face ID, I mean, it's gone down from what Touch ID was, right? I, like, like you said, laying in bed, you know, half your face is showing. I'm like, okay, I get the point that you know, it's like you're not recognizing me because you can only see like one half my face or whatever, right? But then, you know, I also start to wonder because you know I've got like a hat on and I just happen to glance down at my phone and all of a sudden it unlocks, right? I like, I'm like, okay. There's there's definitely a learning curve that's going on with Face ID, um, and how like how much tolerance there is in the algorithm for you know changes and you know sunglasses and other things. I mean, if you're in direct sunlight, it can screw stuff up. It's it's like the reliability there from a from a strict user perspective. I, like I I can see people being frustrated. Uh, you know, that was one of them where I was like, all right, I'll, I'll take Face ID and take and, and use it on my my driver or my daily device. But 
like the kids and the, you know, the rest of the family. I was like, I, I'm going to wait to actually see, cause you wonder if it's going to, it's going to hang around whether or not Apple's going to stick with it in the next version, or if they're going to update it some way that makes, you know, the, the iPhone X just, you know, uh, yeah, it, like deprecated, I guess is the term I'm looking for. Yeah, I can. Are you using a face ID at all? No, I don't have iPhone X. Um, or wait, iPhone 10. What did I say? iPhone X? How, whatever. I, I don't know what the proper Apple term there is. Yeah, well, I say so because I know when I say iPhone X, my wife looks at me like I'm a complete asshole and then <laughs> lets me know that I'm, you know, saying it wrong. Um, so I think it's iPhone 10. Anyways. Uh, I don't have one, so I really can't speak to it. Um, but like, it, I, I guess it's kind of that whole thing of what Kevin was talking about earlier with, you know, uh, the person whose threat model didn't include that. Like, I guess it, it I don't know. I, I don't, although I'll say with me, I, I always get told, oh, I, I saw somebody that looked like you. It's, and I've gotten pictures. And actually, there was a picture of David Shaw. Um, who someone somebody sent me a, sent me a picture of, I think it was like Jason Haddock sent me a picture of David Shaw he's like dude I thought this was you I'm sitting at this table and I thought this was you I just swear to god my own my mom saw it and she didn't even know the difference um between the two of us anyways all I have to say like uh I don't know a lot of people that look like you Seth turns out a lot of people I get it all the time like oh somebody looks like so I don't know more likely for some people less likely but it, it really like does it are you worried about it i guess that's what it all comes down to if now if you're a ceo of a big company or something like that um yeah obviously that changes that that whole threat model around like yeah, i mean if people are creating masks that look like you right that's, that's <laughs> yeah. not a, a very safe uh security mechanism to be using right yeah um yeah exactly so people are which is there a site yet for creating masks to bypass let me see here i I don't know i mean i saw some of the articles the original ones on you know testing it out and it was pretty difficult initially to to get a printed mask that looked and worked but i I, like anything they'll get better at it you know that they will right for sure oh sweet jerry's gonna wear a mask of me good well, just send pictures so I know what I'm doing in Vegas, Jerry. That's all that matters. <laughs> oh, yeah. So uh, I did want to point out because uh, I saw a comment from from Neil Brakeman Pro. I, did, I actually forgot I was wearing this, but yeah, shout out for Brakeman Pro. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to do like some kind of sponsor thing for that. They're going to send me something for free, right? Right, Neil? Or Brakeman Pro shirts? I don't know. Anyways. I'm just rambling, nor me. I like I like Justin's comment today on Twitter about how the uh, the, the brakeman traffic always goes up during the Olympics because people are looking for bobsled brakeman, and so <laughs> <laughs> the analytics go through the roof. <laughs> oh, I didn't see that. I gotta look. I think I did get in a pop up though that said something about a brakeman tweet being popular. That probably was what it was. You know, oh, I had yeah. to follow. Uh, Justin Collins one year at CodeMash, and he did this talk. And he's you, you guys know him. He's he's awesome, very intelligent, very very uh, 
um, good at what he does. And he did this just like basic talk at um, on like bug bounties and different things. And it was standing room only, absolutely packed, uh, absolutely jammed, and the crowd absolutely ate it up. And then I came up and had to talk about my you know Samuel talk or whatever, and like three quarters of the crowd left. And I was like, oh man. Tough, tough guy to follow. <laughs> I went to a talk. He, so he did. He gave a talk at Cactus Con. I don't remember the year. It was like 2014, 2015. Anyways, it was so funny because he's up there and he. It's like static analysis for dummies, like writing a static analysis tool for for complete noobs. And um, so he basically, you could tell maybe a third of the way through. Like a lot of the crowd was just lost, even though they wanted to follow. Like it was a good talk, it was good solid material, but you could tell that that. that, that. And so I don't know. It just uh, kind of I was kind of laughing because towards the end of the talk, he was like, "It's so easy. It's so easy. Like static analysis is so easy." And uh, uh, I don't know. It's just that's just Justin. He's a really smart guy, and it's just kind of always funny. Like he always says stuff like it's really easy, and you know, yes, it is to him for sure. Very simple. To him, very simple. To him, to him. <laughs> and then we have to go to Google, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, that, I mean, that, that that covers face idea. I don't think there's much else there that, like, we really wanted to talk about. Was there anything else from you, Kevin, or you, Ken? No, just. Looking for where to buy my Seth Law mask on eBay right now. Well, apparently Jerry knows where it's at, so you, you can hit him up. Okay. He did bring up the XKCD comic, right? You know, geeks always think that it's going to take some sort of huge problem and people are, or, you know, huge computing tasks. So people are just going to give up. Whereas most of the time they're just going to grab a hammer and start beating you up until you actually give them your password. So. I, I guess if they need your face, if they've got you in custody, that's pretty easy. So. I just read a really chilling, um, you know, news article about a murder, and I, I don't know all the details, but the the person to cover it up used it wasn't a murder, maybe the person overdosed or something, and the person used um, the 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 person who died fingerprint to unlock their device to send out text messages to buy themselves time to try to you know cover it up or distance themselves or whatever. So, um, I mean, it's, it's happening out there, whether it's, it's your fingerprint or, you know, someone, I think it might be a little harder to hold open someone's eyelids. So maybe Apple has that with the whole face ID thing, uh, for the whole attention, but, um, it is real. I mean, it is somewhat of a real world thing as far as, uh, people are being coerced or, or, uh, otherwise to, to open up their, their devices without their, their knowing. Yeah. I mean, anytime you, you deal with biometric authentication, right, that, that, that's what you're going to get. I, I mean, I remember one of my first like mobile assessments that somebody tried to implement uh, biometric authentication, like face, like picture, right? Picture authentication. They're like, oh, but we have like live analysis and, you know, we see whether or not someone blinks or not. I was like, all right, and created like a nice little like looping GIF that just like two faces from Facebook, one open, one closed totally worked right you know it's just like it's very hard to actually implement and people put that stuff out on social media so yeah right and should it really be a factor yeah it's it's something that you have or some someone that you are 
but we don't protect that with the same level of scrutiny or security as we do our passwords or some of the other things. And that was the last thing that I hit on in, in that blog was I would really like Apple has the ability and so does Google have the ability to allow bio plus, right? So bio plus a pin, bio plus a password. Uh, I would really, I mean, if they could just toggle that on, the framework's already there. You already have the ability to set a, a simpler complex password or a pin number or biometric. If you could have multiple, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think touch ID is easy enough and it's, it's, uh, effective enough uh, percentage-wise that I would be willing to put fingerprint plus a four-digit or six-digit pin and, you know, kind of alleviate some of that concern as well. But um, that was the last thing in the blog that, that, that I think that the framework's already there. They have the ability. If they wanted to, um, they, could, they could enable that. Yeah. Well, and that's what I'm looking forward to is actually like a combination of factors, right? Your face IDs and your with your fingerprint, right? Like at that point, you've got a little bit higher level of trust that it is you, and you still get a lot of that usability out of it, right? So, um. there is before, so because we're approaching an hour, there's one piece I wanted to um, to uh, get into real quick, which was the web cache deception. Uh, vulnerability. Do you want to explain to folks kind of the high level on that, um, Kevin? And while you're doing that, I'm going to post in the Burp Suite extension to help analyze apps for this to find these vulns. Yeah, absolutely. So this is this is a something that just came across my Twitter timeline. Um, I can't take credit for it. It was it was found uh, and, and and publicized last year by by a pen tester out of uh, EY, I think. Um, and he talked about it at Black Hat, uh, but everyone I've talked to, no one, uh, you know, my Slack feeds and, and at work, no one recognized it. Um, and I thought it'd be a good topic to, to throw out there because it fits right into the three of our wheelhouse. Um, but basically what this researcher identified was um, the fact that if you have, um, you know, dynamic content pages, uh, or, or um, sensitive pages in, in applications um, that don't properly strip off um, additional content on the end. So for example, if you had uh, kevcody.com or whatever uh, forward slash account.php or, or, or some type of extension, and then uh, the user puts on slash um, info.text or, um, you know, uh, uh style sheet, CSC, whatever it is, there are some, um, content delivery networks, some proxies, some configurations in your web server that will see that and override your cached control headers and cache that, but it caches it at the, the, the content delivery network level or it caches that at the, the web server level. And what happens is um, if that person can get you to click on a link and it's not some crazy obscure off-domain link, it's just a regular link forward slash some static content. Um, the, the caching entity, whether that be a CDN or whether that be your, your web server, will actually cache sensitive information. So what this researcher did, and, and it's available in the link that they can posted, um, they went to PayPal, they went to forward slash account, they added forward slash malicious.css, some random CSS file. It was cached at, I think, um, uh, either Akamai or, or um, what's the other, Cloudflare? I think it was cached at Cloudflare's level. 
And then they went to a completely separate browser, IP, separate everything, and went to that same link forward slash uh, account forward slash uh, malicious.css. And sure enough, their their content, which was um, you know very very sensitive information in there, was cached completely unauthenticated at that that caching layer. And um, it's very simple, very easy configuration mistake to to, to make. And um, you know if you can get someone to click on something. Um, it uh, was uh, caching sensitive content. So it's really, really interesting. Uh, uh, I don't even want to call it an attack uh, unless you identify it and you get someone to click on a link. I guess that would be an attack, but it's just a really weird kind of edge case configuration scenario. And um, yeah, it was, it was really cool. Cool. So I, like looking at that article, right, um, where he's introducing it, it's, it's obviously kind of a cool little edge case with caching, right? But the mitigation factors, right? He's still bringing up the point that uh, HD, it, yeah, so configure the cache mechanism to cache files only if their HTTP caching headers allow it. Um, hmm. So so my understanding. So, but, it, but it's like, like only the content type. So it basically ignores it because it is CSS or JS as opposed to, you know, a PHP file. Is that? Is that kind of where it's it's happening? The attack? Yeah. So my understanding is basically the the web server or the content delivery network is getting confused on that extra that extra file that's tacked on the end or or, or you know a non-existent file, and it's kind of like. Um, there's another attack that was similar to this, and of course I'm, I'm drawing a blank on, on the spot here, uh, but. Um, you know, kind of like a whitelist, blacklist scenario. Um, SAML, SAML attacks where, where you have the, 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 the wrapper attacks, right? Where depending on the parser of the XML, it would uh, look at, at the first um, the, the first wrapper or the last wrapper. This is the kind of same idea, right? Depending on how the content caching mechanism happens at the, the content delivery network or at the web server level, um, it should be looking at that first file type, but it's actually looking at the last file type and it's caching it because it is um, a, a, a static extension. Um, mm -hmm. So my understanding is obviously it, putting the proper cache control headers on is 101. We have to do that if it's sensitive data, uh, and that will be that will cover your, your vast majority of cases. Uh, but additionally, if you have one of these weird configuration scenarios that um, does try to cache on these extra, um, you know crazy extensions on the end. Um, it's to, to basically um, make it so your app, if there is an extra slash and, and trailing uh, file or unknown extension, to basically redirect that back to whatever content you want that, that to redirect. That's my, my understanding, other than the configuration specific for IES, specific for Akamai, uh, his overall recommendation is just to redirect anything trailing that file, uh, redirect it back to, to a safe file. Don't allow, you know, basically double double extension or double double uh, content. Yeah, and and that makes sense. I mean, some of the the newer web frameworks, right? I, you think about your Node and your other ones where you have to specify exactly what you want to get, right? I, I don't see it as being quite as effective as some of the the you know older, right? You know, but, you know Apache configurations and things like that where you can actually append it and it just ignores everything after it hits the file that it finds, right? So man, it, it's a pretty clever little little way to, you know, get information. I mean, you still got to deliver the attack somehow, but I'm sure you could throw something up on a page and just, 
you know, the more people that visit it, you just monitor that cache and whenever it changes, you pull down the information and call it good. Be interesting yeah. to do a comparison of the different CDNs at that point, right? Your Edgecast, your Cloudflare, and actually see how they respond to that. And I wonder if Omer, Omer, I guess is his name, yeah. if he's actually gone further with that, right? Because it could I, be, yeah. I mean, it would be really interesting to see. I do know specifically Akamai came out with a, with a, a blog post specifically to uh, say like, hey, this is this is a good attack. This is this is understandable, and this is the protections that we have for you to be able to put that in place. And he he called out another one specifically in uh, in, in that blog, which you can all read that that said like, you know. Um, this is why it's common on, under this one because they have this feature and they were they were um, it's like a cache override feature that basically said ignore the cache headers if you want cache refresh to happen at, at X amount of hours uh, enable this feature and it'll allow you to um, you know basically override those headers and it, it's mentioned there in the blog but but um, it's it's definitely interesting and I think each uh, you know depending on who's who your your CDN is or, or um, what web server you have, there's there's definitely a lot of different scenarios that, that take play. Mm. Yeah, it'd be a fun one to... I can't well, wait to... Talk... Arsenal, right? I mean, because that's, that's something we should look at, right? You know, if we're looking at an app, definitely the cache control headers become a bigger deal if that's the case. I can't wait till I find it in a while. I'm, I'm like going back like, did I just miss this? Have I just never found a scenario where, you know, I, I'm just... Counting the day, and then that brings up the burp uh, extension, right? That you could basically uh, automate that, or put that into your scan, or right-click and 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 do the test, uh, so that you can, um, you know, easily try to detect that. Because it's very easy to do. You just, you know, append a file type on the end and see if it if it uh, uh, is available without uh, authorization headers or credentials or whatnot. What was Jerry mentioning with hands-on hacking? I'm trying oh. to <laughs> we were we were asking he was asking if you could use it as a denial of service attack against a you know a CDN or a um yeah a caching system right because you probably could if you were to download some like 10 gig file and right there there may be ways to actually do that so or um is, is he, and I don't have the chat up, but is he meant like just create like an ephemeral, um, you know, extension on the end where you just keep adding more and more and more and more extensions on the end and, and, and just keep going out. Um, and, and I don't know that that's cached at the CDN though. So that would be a lot of, a lot of data that you would have to put out there for yeah. that. To actually do it. I mean, I think, I think it'd be more interesting on some of the cache proxies inside of an organization you may be able to take advantage of, but usually they have some sort of limit and then they'll drop. Yep. But again, it's another thing that you could actually test out and play with. So, um, Brian's saying there's a notable lag time for the stream. I don't know if he's talking the audio or the video. Um, yeah, I don't know. And also, I do have a wall clock, not in here, but I do have a wall <laughs> clock. So, and an expensive Timex for like $20. This cost me at Kohl's. So, oh, he's just asking if there is. Uh, it's not really. I mean, we're pretty close to live if, because I'm reading these questions just as we're talking, Brian. So, it shouldn't be too bad. Um, 
we did like there is like a 15 second uh delay though or something like that where it's not completely synced up for us so what we see and what you see is like maybe 15 seconds difference or 10 something like that it's minimal i'm I'm, I'm looking around trying to figure out you know do i have a clock in my background what's going on (laughs) (laughs) anyway sorry you know (laughs) here we are going on about other stuff and uh, yeah i get sidetracked so well um i in general i can you know uh David Corsi last week uh, recommended that we ask just kind of a series of questions. Ken, do you still have that list? Yeah, I do. Actually, one of the things that we didn't get into. Wait, where did my. Um, well, the only thing, the only thing I think we did not get into was like what you want to, what, um, what you like to do in your off time or, you know, outside of like, I will say that I've seen a lot of my friends and, you know, friends of yours as well, getting into 3d printing. I don't know if you're getting into that. Um, and hopefully that's what you're asking Seth. Cause I do have this little questionnaire if that's what you're asking. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was the only other thing we really didn't, I mean, besides like, you know, what do you do? What do you do for fun? And like, um, how did you get into the field? I think are the other two things that I have not yet asked or we have not yet, yet asked. Yeah. So, um, for fun, uh, I, I really do kind of live and breathe this stuff probably a little bit to, to, to my own detriment. Um, when I'm not online, I'm, I'm, I'm tearing apps apart or, or IOT stuff apart or, or, you know, soldering something together, you know, back at my workstation there, or, you know, something, you know, that, to that degree. Um, and, uh, I also like to fish. I like to uh, do a little bit of lock sport. I'm not the best, but I inherited a bunch of tools from my wife's grandfather who owned a hardware shop in the South Hills of Pittsburgh. Um, and, uh, got like all the stuff to re key locks and pin and to lock picks and stuff like that. So, um, that was before I realized that that was kind of a hobby in, in, in our profession. And then I started looking into it and realized like, Hey, there's a bunch of people who do this. And, uh, I drink a lot of coffee and repinning, uh, locks is uh, a tedious and, um, you need a steady hand. And I realized I can pick locks a lot better than I can re repin locks. So I kind of went, went down that way. So, but anyway, yeah, I do a little bit of, uh, um, I do a little bit of lock sport. Um, I, I do some fishing. I have two little ones. Uh, so they keep me, uh, once one, 18 months and one's, uh, turning four. So they keep me pretty busy, uh, you know, outside of there, but that's, that's pretty much my day. <laughs> cool. I, the, I mean, the other thing that I was going to ask that, it, it seems to come up again and again as we talk to people. Um, you know, what is your recommendation for somebody starting out in the industry? How would they? How would you recommend, or what resources would you point them at to get into application security? Yeah. So, um, do you, to answer two things at once here. So, so a little bit of about my background. I actually came from telecom. I was like your lowly um, support guy when you called in to, to you know, Verizon. And, and I did, um, you know, BlackBerry troubleshooting back in BlackBerry's big, big heyday and, and, and uh, old Windows uh, 5 uh, OS, um, you know, without the touchscreen uh, troubleshooting. And, and uh, if anyone's used good mobile messenger, 
Uh, I knew good, good mobile messenger before they were like a, um, an MDM company back when it was just government and, 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 um, you know, trying to help people. So anyway, I started off in, in, in telecom. Um, I went to school, uh, got my, my, uh, associate's degree in, um, in uh, networking or something, uh, something like that, uh, programming a little bit of everything. And, uh, my buddy actually pinged me and said, Hey, uh, I work for this big bank and a, we're trying to build this vulnerability database. And I know, you know, a little bit of SQL. Can you come do that for us? And B, we need to test these mobile apps and you have a mobile background, you know, mobile inside and out. Uh, this is back in, in the early days of, of Android apps and, and back, you know, when, when Apple um, was, you know, uh, iPhone three, three G S that kind of stuff. So they had just introduced their, their app. So everyone wanted an app, everyone needed an app and they wanted folks to test it. So, um, I came on board uh, for the bank, built a vulnerability database, and and started testing uh, mobile and got obviously into web because half of mobile really is web, uh, <laughs> and, and kind of you know went from there. But that's my own story. Um, to answer your question, Seth, specifically, I think we we work in an industry that although you do need some type of niche to get in, you need a contact, you need someone to 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 uh, or some way to I think get yourself recognized or at least get a chance of um, getting your application picked up. Uh, I do think that we work for an industry that has just the most amazing wealth of freely available content out there. Yeah. I look at bug bounty reports. I look at uh, you know Iron Geek's website. I look at all the all the B sides that are free or, or next to free to go to. Um, you know the the. Um, the vulnerable app. I mean, they're that it's, it's free, free. And I think that if you have some chops in some language, you have some angle at, at understanding electronics, you have some um, understanding of how to read schematics, whatever that angle is, it gets you interested. I think you can take that and leap, leap start yourself into understanding a discipline. And then from there, like I said, it's just trying to get some angle to get picked up by someone to give you a chance. And Honestly, in today's today's market, if you know or have an interest in security, you probably already have that angle to go to. You just need to, to figure out how to market yourself. Yeah, you just got to figure out that person that that one company that's that's willing to give you the shot. You're right. You know exactly. And, and I, I mean, along those lines, I see that. Right, I, I I see that the industry has expanded quite a bit. That, from what it was, especially as I was getting into it, right? It was very, very network security oriented. Um, and, you know, hey, you're gonna do a, you know, some sort of a penetration test that always involved Nmap, right? That was that was the beginning point of it. Even though I was coming from a more development-esque background, they still wanted me to do vulnerability scans, right? That, that was a portion of it. So, but you're absolutely right. You know, nowadays you could concentrate on, you know, forensics if that's what, you dig or something else and still get into the space pretty easily. Cool. Ken, any, any other questions? No other questions. Um, I, it, Kevin, at some point I do want to, I, I do want you to come back on and do, and, you know, maybe do a deeper dive into mobile. We didn't really talk much, you know, I did. We, we mentioned face ID, but I, I think it'd be interesting to dig into Android versus iOS and some of the, you know, tools and things like that that you use there. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think we'd be interested in that. So at some point in the future, you know, if you're up for it, I'd, I'd, I'd definitely like to have you back and talk through some of that jailbreaking versus 
brooding and that all that kind of stuff that's going on because it is pretty relevant at least to what I do uh, and you know I know Ken deals with it somewhat right well I mean it, it, Kevin like has so much knowledge on the when it comes to the the mobile app sex side so they're like um we definitely need to do a follow-up where we extract that information out of, out of Kevin. Uh, so yeah, I'm in agreement. Kevin, Kevin, just bend over. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that's, that, that's kind of like the, uh, the, um, the other point is trying to, I mean, one of the reasons we we're doing this podcast is to sort of educate, um, keep relevant for our friends. Um, but also our, for everyone to stay relevant, stay up to date with the, the the latest thing, the latest things that are going on. But another piece is to help out with, um, hopefully get bringing, bring in to the fold folks who want to learn AppSec, want to learn mobile security, make it a little bit more, hopefully approachable. So, um, I guess I'm, I'm rambling, but not really. Cause the point is, uh, you asked Kevin, you know, how, what you asked Kevin that question specifically because we want to, we want junior folks or folks who want to get into the industry. Um, we want them to, to have kind of a pathway through. So along the same lines, whether they're new, whether it's, you know, a segment about how can we bring some diversity and inclusion into the field? I definitely think that should be on the roadmap as well. So that was a long way of saying, I think we should do a follow-up with Kevin for mobile security. And I think we should also do one that tries to, um, or, you know, do something to court sort of like, uh, embrace new newcomers to the field and, and also promote some diversity in the field because, you know, yeah, <laughs> I, I think so far we've had like four episodes all been like a bunch of white guys. Right. So we need to, we need to diversify a little bit. Right. So, get out of our comfort zone, you know, widen our audience. No, um, that would be, an, uh, Jerry has an interesting suggestion about twitching Kevin hacking a mobile app, right? That could be fun, right? I mean, that that's just it. Uh, you know, we could probably get into some of that tutorial wise and just, you know, as long as people are interested in it and go pick on, who was it that we were picking on the other day? I can't remember now. Angie's list, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I'm not going to disparage Angie's list, uh, but I, uh, you know, one thing that, that, that and I'm just going to briefly tease this because uh, I don't want to go over it on your time here. But oh, no, thing. don't worry about it. We're, <laughs> it's not any sort of, as Brian said, there's no wall clocks. So. <laughs> one thing that I, I have been, been doing as of late, if, if you have been following the jailbreak scene, is that there was just a, a release for iOS 11, and I was lucky enough to have a device which used to have my duo code on it before I, I, uh, I wiped it for, for testing. But um, uh, it, it, the, the guy, the, the team who released it, or the, the main developer, uh, Coolstar, uh, he's working to get Cydia integrated into it. But for right now, at least the version I have, uh, dpackage isn't included, apt isn't included, Cydia isn't included. So my main um, SSL kill switch or burp or whatever my main tools are for bypassing TLS pinning aren't there. So I've been spending lately a long time, uh, as of late, uh, looking into bypassing TLS pinning at the app level and repackaging level. Uh, so that'd be something I'd love to share, uh, you know, if and when the time comes that you guys have me back on uh, as far as using a non-jailbroken device, but defeating some uh, mechanisms like cert pinning, um, you know, with, with repackaging apps or finding the code or whatever. 
We'd love cool. to see that. That'd be awesome. Yep. Well, good. Well, yeah, we'll plan on it and then, yeah, we can go from there. But um, yeah, we're really, uh, yeah. sorry. Go ahead. Kevin. Well, no, before we left, I did want, I did want to mention, um, well, first of all, ask Kevin, are you going to be speaking anywhere that we can um, tell people about? So um, I have a couple, couple uh, B sides that uh, I'm, I'm formulating uh, talks uh, to, to go to this year. B sides Pittsburgh, just to plug the Steel City, as I always do, uh, is one that I that I always love to go to. Whether I speak there or, or run the Lockpick Village or just help as a volunteer, I'll be there regardless. Um, I had to to bail on Cleveland last year, although I was accepted um, because of, of uh, vacation overlaps. So I'd love to go to Cleveland this year, but I don't have, they haven't approved any, any call for paper yet. And then last year, at the end of last year, I went to Dallas, Fort Worth B-Sides and spoke there. So I do want to go again to somewhere outside of my region. Um, I know Orlando is just about to, to, to be at the, in March or some other B-Sides somewhere. Um, but outside of, of just like B-Sides, I don't have any specific conferences earmarked or, or uh, I'm not accepted, um, you know, uh, anything outside of just local conferences right now. Sweet. Um, well, even that looks good. I mean, it's at a casino, so that should be um, at least fairly like a decent venue. I know casinos usually do it up pretty well. What's um, that besides Pittsburgh? Yeah. Yeah, they just they well the last like three venues they've outgrown. Uh, so hopefully they're like, okay, we're gonna go out of the park this year and just go to the casino. And if they can't support us, we don't know where to go in town. So, um, but yeah, yeah, it's uh, all good. I know Jerry had also mentioned um, Jerry Gamblin. He was on the the podcast uh, two episodes ago. He uh, he had mentioned that there's an AWS Security Week. And San Fran, I'm going to post the link to this. Hopefully the link actually makes it through. Um, and then, of course, Hack West coming up. Yeah, March. come out to Hack West. Right? That's in March. Have to, um, have to promote the local conferences, right? I know Tim Tomes is giving some uh, advanced web application pen testing training. I know that... Fuzzy Knops giving some red team training out there too on top of the, the talks. Um, Loco Mocosec in April. I'm definitely going to that one. Uh, so that's in Hawaii. Uh, so again, that's in April. Um, and I'm trying to think of any, because I've when AppSec Cali was going on, I actually, we completely forgot to mention AppSec Cali was happening. You know, what was being discussed there. Um, yeah, we, that kind of just flew over the radar, but I don't think I'm missing any other ones. So, no, I mean, there's always conferences going on, especially those local ones. Those are always great to hit, right? Uh, you you got to support the local community and usually they're pretty inexpensive, um, but they're also, it's a good way to get to know the local community. You know, if you go hit a B-side somewhere, or a HackWest, a Cactus Con, those are great little conferences. And some of them aren't so little anymore, but in comparison <laughs> to the big ones, those are great. Yeah, I personally can't do Vegas. I, uh, I I did one year. I did two days of of, of uh, training, and then Black Hat, and then uh, DefCon, and and um, corporate parties in the evening. And I just I don't know. I get fuzzy 
Um, I think I think that's that's how the city is made to make you feel. But I I get very overwhelmed. I love the smaller conferences. I love being able to to sit back and and uh, um, choose how much interaction I want to have uh, with different things. And I feel like it's a little bit forced on you uh, in, in Vegas, where uh, there's just you know, thousands of people attending one track or whatnot. So I personally am, am a local conference guy. Of, of course, it'd be awesome to, to, to speak at one of the, the bigger ones someday, maybe Derby or something like that would be more of my speed. Um, and, and, uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. But I, I, uh, I agree with you, Seth. I, I think the, the local, um, the local scene is, is awesome. And I try to plug it whenever I possibly can. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for coming coming on, Kevin. You know, appreciate it. We'll we'll get with you and schedule a follow up here, and you know, not hopefully not too long because all that's incredibly relevant for us and I think the guys that are following and listening. So, yeah, we're getting together. Right, those of you that are listening, you know, if you've got questions or uh, you know, you've got suggestions for guests or topics, feel free to hit us up or DM us on Twitter. We'd love to have uh, more feedback and, you know, help us direct where this, where this goes. All right. Uh, Kevin, don't hop off yet. Uh, we're going to stop the broadcast, but, um, so, uh, but don't jump off. Yep. So thanks. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Bye. See ya.